privilege for us uh, this morning to turn together to Isaiah chapter 39. We'll be picking up uh, there and reading through chapter 40, verse 11. We're going to be focusing on the opening verses of chapter 40 together with you, the first 11 verses this morning. But I want to read chapter 39 as context. Hear now the word of God, which endures forever. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And where did they come? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, who you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom 
and gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we do pray that you would graciously bless your word to our hearts and minds. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would graciously cause us to hear your voice, to see you and to know you this morning more fully. We pray that you would sanctify us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these words are a very familiar passage to us, undoubtedly. I think uh, uh, many would see them as a favorite passage, uh, uh, perhaps remember them from Handel's Messiah, uh, as they have been sung, a rich part of God's word in Isaiah chapter 40. And to set things in context here, uh, I think it's very helpful, because it can be in some ways easy to miss the depths and the height, the vastness of what is being described to us in these opening verses of Isaiah chapter 40. We think of the first half of the book of Isaiah. If you would skim through it, you would see it's a mixture of the Lord's gracious invitation and call, promises, hope from the Lord, also vast views of his majesty, his holiness, covenant faithfulness, as well his warnings and declarations of coming wrath against a rebellious people if they will not repent. Think of Isaiah 9 with its marvelous prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. And then at the same time, in the same chapter, Isaiah has to declare, the Lord God will cut off from Israel the elder and the honored man, the prophet who teaches lies. The Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. Isaiah was called to give many sober warnings. Chapter 30, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. When we come to chapters 36 through 39, there's this fascinating interlude that the Lord gives us here in the midst of this great prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah is a narrative of the kingship of Hezekiah. And we have this marvelous encouragement of the Lord's work in Hezekiah. As Hezekiah repents, he trusts in the Lord. There's the Assyrian siege with this massive army that comes from Sennacherib and this incredible deliverance. The angel of the Lord in one night strikes dead 185,000 warriors. And the Assyrians retreat. And yet, with these vast and great encouragements that the Lord gives, these great blessings, The last chapter that we read of the interlude, after Hezekiah's recovery from his illness, we read that while he passed these tests of adversity faithfully, we now see him turning really to self-centeredness in recovery and prosperity. You know, the concluding words of chapter 39 are really a low point in the book of Isaiah. 
for all the early encouragements of Hezekiah's reign, this good king on the throne, it seems that they're just a temporary lull, a providential reprieve in a dismal and darkening future, a prelude to worse things. Hezekiah, who seemed so good, is proving to be but a, a weak and sinful and even a selfish man. We read those final words where it's prophesied that Babylon will come, will take the city, nothing will be left, and even his own descendants be carried away, and some of them made eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. Hezekiah says, outwardly, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. But the Lord gives us his thoughts, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Can you imagine living at this moment, whether you were Isaiah or another Old Testament believer looking to the Lord? Uh, your emotions and your hopes may have risen greatly with the defeat of the Assyrians, and maybe you had strong confidence in Hezekiah. He's a wonderful godly king. Uh, things are looking up in the nation, in God's great mercies. And yet to see this end and to hear these words that there is going to be a coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem, a profound suffering is ahead. Uh, the nation is headed on a trajectory from these days of Isaiah to the lamentations of Jeremiah. And that despite this encouraging interlude. Well, these circumstances were certainly deserved by the people of the day. The Lord is doing this in perfect holiness, wisdom, and justice. But what is so kind and so unexpected in this context is what the Lord speaks next by his servant. In chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A call for Isaiah to speak tenderly, or to, we could translate it, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Now, you know that in the scriptures where we see repetition in the Bible, I think of earlier in Isaiah, the threefold declaration of the holiness of God. Uh, there's a great emphasis being noted to us. It's flagging something very significant, very important. And here in the opening words of chapter 40, we see this as well. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. This transition from the end of what we just read about Hezekiah is really utterly unexpected. It is surprising. It is incredible in its kindness and mercy and grace from the darkness of impending and deserved judgment on the church, on the covenant people of God we now see that we're suddenly bathed in the light of the Lord's goodness and love. How good and gracious the Lord is here. How tender and compassionate he is. Now, look at the way he addresses the people. They're my people. They belong to you. belong to me. You are my people. Uh, Jerusalem here. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
with my people in Jerusalem standing in parallel, the New Testament equivalent would be to my people, the church. Well, not only is Isaiah given these words to proclaim, but they come as an imperative to him as a servant of the Lord. And while we'll draw some other points of application as we move along, certainly this is one. This is an imperative here to Isaiah as a servant of the Lord. Part of his calling uh, is to comfort the Lord's people. There's a calling to warn. There's a calling to exhort. There's also this marvelous calling to comfort. The ministerial calling to comfort as the Lord's messenger, the Lord's servant. Well, what comfort? Is he to give to the Lord's sinful people? Look with me to verse 2. He is to speak tenderly to them and cry out to them, proclaim to them, both tenderly and loudly, that her warfare is ended. Well, the context There was a recent end to warfare that just happened dramatically with the Assyrian army. The Lord brought about an end to the warfare, but there was was other warfare yet to come, Isaiah had said. And so what is Isaiah speaking of here? Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Well, undoubtedly, it's a reminder for the covenant people, for us that our greatest needs, our greatest difficulty is not our outward trials or our outward circumstances. It was not the brutality of the Assyrians. It was not the poverty and famine that they faced during that window. That was their greatest need and their greatest difficulty. It was not the coming Babylonians in time. It was their own sin against the Lord. It was the fact that they had broken covenant with the Lord. What was their chief problem is our chief problem. Each of us has sinned against the same covenant Lord, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what we see here is that the Lord who acts, acts unilaterally. He comes to a sinful people. He comes with this word, and and we don't know for sure, but uh, It may well have been that Hezekiah himself heard these words coming to him as well as the rest of the people. The Lord comes and he speaks. And he comes to recover and restore what we have broken. What we have defaced in our sin. The Lord acts to initiate, to resolve the offense to deal with the sin and the consequence of sin. And he does so in perfect justice and mercy. This declaration, her warfare is ended, uh, is intimately connected to sovereign, gracious atonement, reconciliation, transformation that would take place by which the warfare not only that surrounded the people, but their own warfare in sin against him would be brought to an end. And in this marvelous transition, we see uh, the Lord, the one who is the I am, 
dealing then with this heart issue. What the Lord says to us here is woven through the whole of the scriptures, isn't it? We think of Romans 5 or Ephesians 2. While we were yet sinners, while we were dead, while we were children of wrath, enemies of God, the triune God purposed, he planned, he acted for us. Christ came while we were yet sinners. He died for us. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love has made us alive together with Christ. And this is the theme that Isaiah expounds. Her warfare is ended, verse 2, because her iniquity is pardoned. Her sin is forgiven. It's pardoned. Hezekiah's sin, forgiven and pardoned. Yes, there would be earthly consequences. But this marvelous pardon, and why? Verse 2 again. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this does not mean that the Lord's people had been punished twice as much as they had deserved. Rather, it referred to the ground on which they were forgiven. They've received and are receiving, they will receive from the Lord an atonement that is abundance. It will pay the penalty due to them. It will satisfy and remove, it will propitiate and expiate his holy wrath from them and do so fully and abundantly. And Isaiah is called to comfort the people with this word, this precious gospel word. Comfort them, speak tenderly to them, tell them this. There is a great atonement. There is a great propitiation. There is a great cleansing and pardon that will cover every sin. That will wash it away. Well, as Isaiah's prophetic eyes and ears are open to this marvelous message of comfort that he's called to declare, he realizes that there is more to be said, more to be told. And the first thing that he sees and hears now by the Spirit is something that will be fulfilled, we know, in the New Testament era. Verse 3, a voice cries. There's another prophet to come crying out, shouting out comforting news, declaring glorious things, telling everyone, all creation to get ready. Verse 3, in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill brought low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The Lord is coming. Isaiah is to proclaim in this message of comfort. And as the Lord is coming and comes, no obstacle will prevent him. The description here is as though all creation itself is being bent back into shape, smooth and straightened. The mountains and hills brought low, the uneven ground becoming level. All of creation is uh, being shifted and changed and smoothed out and made ready for the coming of the Lord. There is no reality, physical or spiritual, 
neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, that can prevent or hinder this coming of the Lord. In fact, everything Isaiah is called to proclaim, every event, circumstance, all creation will work together, whether willingly or unwillingly, it will work together to be ready for his coming. And Isaiah says, his coming will be evident. It will be visible. What a declaration for Hezekiah, for the people, the covenant people. There will be a visible coming of the Lord. The invisible God will make himself manifest here in this world. In this wilderness world of sin, with all its consequences of misery and suffering. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is saying to the people in this great message of comfort, you will see his glory, his redeeming, double-paying abundant atonement. You will see his gift of forgiveness. You will see him. You will see him. And it's certain, it's unshakably sure, because the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. And everything that the Lord says happens. It always comes to pass. What a marvelous comfort. Imagine the believers, perhaps some who are around Hezekiah, perhaps Isaiah himself. uh, Disheartened, downcast, uh, the church so weak in Hezekiah's day. Uh, Other believers, you, you know how it is in our own day. At times we're encouraged in the life of the church. At times we see fellow believers, we see things in the church that grieve our hearts. We see its weakness. We see its struggle. And so in that context, this marvelous word comes. The Lord says, I have spoken. This is coming to pass. And it will, and it does. This day is coming that my glory will be revealed. And we stand on the other side. We know that God incarnate, God the Son, has taken to himself our flesh And he has walked this earth, the streets of this earth. He's gone to the cross in this world. He's conquered sin and death and paid that double marvelous payment in our place for our salvation. Well, as we look to the text, we now suddenly hear two voices in the text. And again, from the text, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear. The first is either the Lord himself speaking directly, or it is perhaps an angel bearing this command from the Lord. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And then the second appears to be Isaiah responding with the question, and I said, what shall I cry? And then by the Spirit, he gives the answer that is declared. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is what Isaiah has just reminded Hezekiah of. Hezekiah has been restored to health in the Lord's mercy, and, and he's shown off all his wealth and his riches. Um, he's, he's become self-centered and, and focused on the wrong things and, and seemed to have had this mentality of the enduring realities of the glories of Jerusalem after this great deliverance the Lord had given. His hope had been misplaced. And here the Lord's word, the word of comfort and tenderness that comes uh, tenderly uh, strips back our hearts and reminds us of our reality. That all that we see here is like grass and there is beauty. There's marvelous beauty in what God has created. There's incredible beauty in his creation of us with all of our abilities and minds and all that we are. There's such beauty, and yet the grass withers and the flower fades, and we know it, and we know it here as well. We know that even in the last year, there are those who have passed on to glory, who have faded from this life. Dear friends, we see it in the church. We know in our families, and the truth is a truth for us as well. We also are quickly fading people. We are here but a short time. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, the grass withers, the flower fades. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Things quickly flit away. And that could cause despair, could cause hopelessness. But no, there's great comfort here, for there is an eternal and infinite solidity and strength and power, and it's found in God himself, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who has numbered our days, the one who has written them in his book before there were any of them. And he's the one who has appointed the span of our days, our grass-like span on this earth, but his word stands forever. And so his great word of comfort stands forever. And that comfort is also the answer to death itself. And more greatly, the answer to our sin. And so this marvelous contrast between the people, between us and the Lord, between a short earthly grass-like existence and his enduring faithfulness and promise is a powerful continuation and confirmation of the end of verse 5, where he is promised, the mouth of the Lord is spoken, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, all flesh shall see it. The Redeemer is coming, the mouth of the Lord has spoken, his word stands forever. Great comfort. Well, Isaiah's joy, his delight in proclaiming this message of good news with all its weightiness, this good news for a sinful people uh, now really breaks into rapture as he continues to proclaim now in verse 11. 
sorry, verse 9. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The call is to shout it from the mountaintops, uh, from Mount Zion, to declare the Lord is coming. Uh, This is the call from Isaiah uh, to the covenant people right there and then, that they would be stirred up, and they would be filled with hope in the Lord's promise. Their hope wouldn't rest in the earthly kingdom but would rest in the Lord and in his mercies and his goodness and his plan and purpose for them in communion with him. They are to shout out, the Lord is coming. Well, for us, we are to shout out, the Lord has come. To proclaim, we stand on the other side of the fullness of this revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has come in grace and glory in his dear beloved son, in our Lord Jesus Christ, for our redemption, for our life, for our restoration to himself. And so Isaiah's word comes to us, proclaim this, get up, heralds of good news. Why has the Lord brought you to himself to new life, whether or not he calls you to gospel ministry? You might be a witness and a testimony. You know, this call here we see is is not simply a call to the prophet, but it's a call by the prophet to Zion, to Jerusalem, corporately, to the whole body of the Lord's people to proclaim and declare. Tell everyone, tell all around, tell the cities. And here in this context, we see it's proclaimed by Zion and declared to the cities of Judah, behold your God. The context here really seems to be among the covenant people of God, declaring from Jerusalem to the other cities of Judah, encouraging, comforting, strengthening, opening the eyes of fellow believers. Again, brothers and sisters here, the calling as ordinary believers, this is part of our calling to comfort one another, to encourage one another, to let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly and to speak to one another that we might see, that we might behold God, that we would be means of life to one another, people from whom flow streams of living water. What better thing? What better thing for seminarians? not simply to stand in a holy huddle after church on Sunday morning, uh, talking about the intricacies of Van Til versus Clark or something like that, as good and helpful as those things might be, but to uh, spread out among the congregation, to love the elderly, to love the young, to speak to them the word of the Lord, to share, to talk about the Lord's gracious work in your life, to comfort one another, to speak of his word and let his word dwell in you richly so that you are bearers of blessing and life to one another. Undoubtedly, this has implications also for evangelism, heralding the good news. Beyond that, E.J. Young says this, the cities of Judah are stopped, as it were, 
that they might see their God before them. After the long night of sin and warfare, the time of darkness brought on by the sins of the people, at last God himself is again coming to his own. In these words is the heart of the gospel, the sum of our happiness, as Calvin puts, us, puts it, which consists solely in the presence of God. Behold your God. Commune with him. See him. Listen to him. Have you ever thought of that? I trust you have. The core of your happiness and blessedness is found here, both now and forever. It's the heart of the gospel, beholding God, being with God. The God of all glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being in the presence of the triune God and having God with you as a creature made in his image for his glory, redeemed at such price. See him, Isaiah declares to the people, as he now comes in royal procession, verse 10. Behold. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. The Lord is coming as king. And Matthew Henry makes this note. He's coming as the omnipotent ruler, the powerful, strong, unstoppable ruler, as the declaration of all creation, conforming to his coming, declares. His strong hand will subdue his people to himself. What a wonderful meditation by Matthew Henry there. We need the Lord's strong hand to subdue us, brothers, to himself. And he will restrain and conquer his and their enemies. Jesus Christ coming to do his mighty work of redemption. And his reward is with him, it says. And what is the reward spoken of here? The recompense, the reward that the God of all glory has. Well, I think if we look to the New Testament, it becomes clear that the reward, Hebrews 2.13 or John 6.37, of the Son is all that the Father gives to him. The children whom God has given me. Such a beautiful picture, God coming in might, and his reward is with him. He's bringing his people to himself, and he's doing that generation by generation, in our generation as well. His reward, can we fathom it? That God, the God of all glory, in and through the Son, would consider someone like you, someone like me, his reward. We know our own sin. And this is the reward that he's bought at such great cost. The Lord Christ, the King, is coming. And he's coming as a glorious and powerful king, but he's also coming as a tender shepherd. Our final verse this morning, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms 
carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Most of us here are adults. And uh, I think in many cases, though not all, sadly in a broken world, many of you can probably remember a time when your mom or dad gathered you in their arms. And even sometimes as adults, I think there are times where we or maybe go through something hard and we just sort of wish we could be back in childhood. We wish our dad or mom could just give us a hug and comfort us like a little child. Uh, But the picture here is so marvelous, isn't it? Who is our heavenly father, our great God, but our great shepherd in and through Christ, God, the son, our great shepherd, our tender shepherd, His arms are strong, perfectly strong, stronger than any earthly father or mother. He is the one who, in his mighty arms, carries his people and pulls them to his bosom, draws them close to himself. This is shocking. This is marvelous. Again, in the context of what we've read at the end of Isaiah 39. It's absolutely undeserved. We're reminded here by the Lord. He's the one who cares for and protects every member of his flock, each one of his children. He gathers us in his cosmically powerful, no, his infinitely divinely powerful arms, surrounding us with power and love and protection that nothing else can come close to. You know, perhaps as Isaiah was inspired to uh, pen these words, to proclaim these words, he was thinking of Psalm 23, and almost think how, how Psalm 23 maybe echoed through his heart and mind as he thought of this, this marvelous theme of the good and tender and strong shepherd. And we know, again, that our Lord Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled these things beautifully. Well, as we wrap up, By way of application, brothers, be in the word that you might commune with and behold your God. And then, having communed with and living, beholding him in all his grace and mercy and holiness, be men, particularly here thinking of you seminary students and faculty, let us be men who are marked as being those who proclaim this marvelous comfort and have his word in our hearts and minds. We might minister this to others. Let's pray. The Lord, our God, we bow before you. We thank you for your gracious word. Oh, Lord, we know that we are no better than Hezekiah. Lord, indeed, in our own sin, often far weaker and worse. We pray, Lord, that you would graciously bless us you would subdue us by your strong and mighty arm to yourself. We pray that you would open our eyes today and through this week and through the days we have remaining on this earth more and more to behold you. O Lord, draw us into sweet communion with you. Surround us with your mighty everlasting arms. Lord, that we would have great comfort and joy and hope in you. O Lord, we pray, make us ministers of your comfort to your people and proclaimers of your comfort to those who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen.